and welcome to Device Week. I'm senior reporter for Dos Al Farouk. Many of you know me as Danny. I'm joined today by my colleague, managing editor Elizabeth Orr. Elizabeth, let's dive right into it. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a patent case that could have broader implications for inventor rights. Tell us about that. Thanks, Danny. The case that the justices heard on April 21st was Minerva Surgical versus Hologic, Inc. It started with a dispute over endometrial ablation technology, but is now looking at whether the inventor of the technology should be able to argue later that a patent on the invention shouldn't have been issued. Interesting. And how did that happen? Good question. One common situation, and what happened here, is that the inventor assigned rights to their patent to someone else, often their employer. Let's call them Company A. But because the inventor is usually a specialist in that area, they're likely to continue to do similar work if they move on to a different firm, Company B. If that happens, Company A, in that case Hologic, might eventually sue Company B, in this case Minerva, for patent infringement. And one common defense in patent cases is that the original patent shouldn't have been issued in the first place. But if the inventor works for Company B, that prevents it from using that line of defense. So Minerva was in court arguing that the whole concept, which is also known as a sign or estoppel, should go by the wayside. So what kinds of opinions did people express leading up to the case? Well, the amicus briefs in the case were mixed. Some tech companies argued that eliminating a sign or estoppel could make it much harder for companies to protect intellectual property. But many other organizations tried to find a middle ground that would allow for some exceptions to the doctrine while keeping it largely in place. That compromise was the tack the U.S. government took in its brief in the case, and it seemed to be where the justices were headed during arguments Wednesday. And how do the companies themselves argue in this case? Minerva's lawyer argued that assigner estoppel wasn't in the Patent Act, and the Supreme Court has allowed inventors to invalidate patents in a few situations since the 1924 case that laid out the doctrine. He called the whole thing, quote, a doctrinal dinosaur and didn't seem interested in signing on to potential compromises suggested by the justices. Hologic's lawyer, Matthew Wolf, meanwhile, said that getting rid of a signer estoppel would need to be handled by Congress, not the courts. He also expressed concerns about how striking down or limiting the concept would affect existing patent agreements made with the understanding that the inventor couldn't challenge the patent in court. Changing that, Wolf said, would mean, quote, a windfall for assigners and radically undercutting the return on the deal for a quarter century's worth of assignees. And you mentioned that the government has suggested a compromise. Yes, U.S. Assistant Solicitor General Morgan Ratner, who argued on behalf of the government, said that the federal circuit may have applied assigner estoppel too broadly in this specific case, but the doctrine itself is sound. Her recommended compromise would apply a two-arm test to the doctrine. The key prongs would be, first, whether the patent's sale had been a type of agreement that includes implicit warranties, and second, whether the original patent matches the intellectual property claims being challenged. That would allow the main historic doctrine to stay in place while protecting inventors in certain situations, such as patent assignments made before an invention was developed, for example, when employees sign away all intellectual property rights to their employers, continuation applications, and changes in the law, the Radner allowed that some other unusual circumstances might also allow for an inventor to challenge a patent that was very different from what they initially sold. And the justices seemed to back that, right? Yes. A lot of the questions they asked seemed to be aimed at finding some middle ground. I spoke to a patent lawyer earlier this afternoon, Irina Roisman, and she said she expects the court to craft a compromise that may draw on the government's suggestions or may strike off in a different direction. The main concern, she said, is going to be making sure the law allows for the concept, but that it's applied fairly across the board. And speaking of patents, Danny, you also wrote a story this week on how the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is trying to encourage inventors to submit patent applications for COVID-19 related products. What's happening at the agency? 
Yes, thanks, Elizabeth. So some of our listeners may remember that back in May 2020, the USPTO launched its COVID-19 Prioritized Examination Pilot Program. The program was meant to help inventors who have developed a product to tackle the coronavirus pandemic to jump the line and get their patent reviewed much faster. According to an attorney I spoke to recently, that program, however, never met its maximum quota of 500 applicants. With that in mind now, the USPTO, in just the past few weeks, have launched two more programs to encourage COVID-19 product inventors to file their patent applications. The first one is basically a waiver of fees for patent processes, such as an ex parte reexamination proceeding, patent applications, and even post-patent litigation. The program is part of the USPTO's Patents for Humanity program. The second program is the agency's fast-track reviews of COVID-19-related ex parte appeals. So basically, if the agency on the first prosecution denied a patent for the product on COVID-19 grounds, the applicant can appeal the decision and it will be fast-tracked. Interesting. And you mentioned these programs haven't really been fully taken advantage of. Why is that? Well, the attorney I spoke to about this said that he thinks not enough people know about the programs, especially smaller companies and startups. Jason Novak with the law firm Haynes & Boone said that these programs can shave years off of the time it takes to get a patent and thousands of dollars in application fees. For larger companies, that may not be enough of an incentive, and they often come to the patent office with a strategic plan on how to get their patents anyway. But for those smaller companies, academic institutions, and startups that are trying to get their patent, these programs can be a lifeline in terms of time and money saved. So what was Jason's advice to companies who may have a COVID-19-related patentable product? Well, first of all, he says that some companies may not have thought about their product through the lens of the pandemic, especially if they filed their application before the start of the pandemic and these programs. His advice is to take a step back and try to assess if the product can be a significant tool in the fight against COVID-19. Now, some people may think of these products just in terms of drugs, vaccines, and vaccine accessories, but Jason says that there's a lot more to it. He's got a client who's developed a product to protect physicians and patients in hospitals from contracting the virus, and another client who uses remote patient monitoring data that initially wasn't meant for COVID-19, but they reapplied their patent application to show that it can be. Obviously, the flip side of this is don't just claim something is COVID-19 related product because it will fail and you will have wasted time and effort. But do take that step back and make an honest assessment about whether your product can be a product to fight the pandemic. And if it is, you could be saving a lot of time and money. So anyway, that's kind of the crux of my reporting. But for our listeners who want to get a more deep dive into our reporting, visit us at medtechinsight.com and follow us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. For now, thanks for listening.